0: To the urban robot cat podcast i'm your host travis likens i'm chris rwk
1: and i'm corey from strange cat toys and we're
0: here for episode 58 but before we get too far into it we do want to take a second to thank our sponsors first up we have stickerfied Stickerfied stickerfied.com made a wonderful sticker for us and they want to do the same for you make sure to head over to stickerfied.com next up we have no love city no love city the home of the official full color urban robot cat t-shirt use the code urban robot cat at checkout and you'll receive 10 percent off your order Next up, we have SD Prints, sdscreenprinting.net, where you can get some wonderful screen-printed product to sell in your own store. If you want to check out all the products they have to offer, make sure to head over to sdscreenprinting.net. And finally, TYO Toys, tyotoys.com, where you can get some wonderful DIY platforms to put your own original spin on, or just have a cool toy for your desk. Make sure to head over to tyotoys.com. So Chris, it's been a week. Anything exciting going on over in your neck of the woods?
2: Nothing too crazy. I... uh... It just picked up a, another uh, solo show. Uh, it's going to be in September over in uh, the UK with Stowe Gallery. And
0: that's pretty much it. So you're making a jump across the pond, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, see see what I could do over there. Should should be fun. I'm, I'm things, looking forward to it. Should things open up,
1: are you going to go over there and get a Scotch egg or some fish and chips?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they they mentioned you know flying me over if uh, if everything kind of lightens up with the you know, travel bans or whatever, you know, quarantines. So we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully by then. It's a few months away at least. Nice. So. But what about you, Corey? What's new?
1: By the time this airs, hopefully we're sold out of the new Chris Doga uh, lava edition of the puck um, that released on Saturday. Um, and then we have or have had our washi tape artist series one release, which hopefully does pretty well. I'm um, pretty excited for the washi tape.
0: Yeah, so for listeners that may not know what washi tape is, would you mind giving them the little update if they missed that episode?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a, It's like a decorative paper tape. It's usually like made out of bamboo or, or something like that, so it's pretty sturdy tape. Um, it's not meant for packing or anything. It's more for just to look pretty, looks nice, you know, put it in your envelopes or... Whatever you want to put
0: it on. It looked uh, looked cool. And if you're listening to this episode, and you like Chris, you can check out uh, Chris's tape that's a part of the artist series. So get that little plug in there.
2: (laughs) Yeah, thank you. Thank you. What about you, Travis? What do you got going
0: on? Uh, This has been a week of uh, working on projects that are kind of like, you know, 2022 kind of thing. So not a lot to report on for UVD Toys this week. But, uh, you know, on the home front here um you know just been hanging out with the kid he's been kind of developing rather rather quickly now that he's getting close to the five month point so he's starting to get a little bit of a little bit of life and it's been a lot of fun just to kind of experience uh you know a kid kind of finding his way here so i'm uh definitely learning as i go um as i think all parents are but uh it's been uh starting to get fun i guess you know it's uh exciting times but we are not just here to talk about Chris, Corey, and I and, you know, the things that I can't talk about for 2022. We do have a guest that I'm going to say is uh, legendary for our podcast, and that is the one and only Frank Kozik. Welcome to the show, Frank.
3: I don't know about the legendary. Maybe in my own <laughs> mind. My name's Frank, and I've done all kinds of stuff for a long time now, starting in the uh very early 80s uh, from... Uh, punk rock poster activities to big screen rock posters to album covers. I had a record label for five, six years called Man's Ruin. Got into urban vinyl early in Japan in the late 90s. Did my first urban vinyl release with Bounty Hunter uh, right around 1999 and then with Metacom for a couple of years and then uh, started up releasing toys in the U.S. around 2000 and 2003 Uh, done a million toys I still do all kinds of artwork every kind of format possible from the rock stuff to designing products Uh, I'm also been the um, chief creative officer for kid robot for the last five years and kind of like trying to bring that back a little bit I've been involved in a million projects Uh, a quick Google search of my name will show you all the wonders but care to take a look at and now uh fixing get into the exciting new world of nfts so time travels on so i've been doing creative stuff for about 35 years now mostly the sort of underground realm whatever you might want to call it people people like labels i'm not a big fan so um kind of whatever category you want to put me in. I've probably done something in that category.
0: Were you somebody that was always creative as a kid or is that something that you kind of developed later in life?
3: As a kid, I was really into, you know, I had a chaotic fucked up childhood. So naturally I turned to like organizing small things within my reality, make myself feel better. So as a kid, you know, I like to draw, copy things, you know, build forts, uh, models, make models uh scratch build weird little contraptions, you know, decorate my room, uh, you know, all that kind of, of of stuff. And uh never there were never any plans or aspirations to be a creative. I mean when I was a kid I was really into like um I was looking at to be able to go to the ocean every year. I was really into like a animals in like you know kind of sort of vague dreams of like being a marine biologist or something like that um but then you know as i got older economic realities you know i I dropped out of high school basically um you know once i came to the states i only went to school for like a year it sucked so i i bailed and like went out was homeless for a while as a kid uh so never had any plans to be creative. Uh, I kind of, uh, you know, went in this military, ended up being stationed in Austin, Texas, in 1980, knowing nothing about it. But luckily, um, there was a flourishing punk rock and underground art scene in Austin because it was kind of a liberal oasis for that whole part of the country. Anybody that was weird in Texas, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, kind of ended up in Austin doing their thing. So. I was very lucky to stumble into a, like a really rich and vibrant, like sort of like a do-it-yourself, street-level cultural scene in Austin. Um, I had heard about punk rock, but had never experienced it live. So, like my third night there, I went to a big punk club called Clubfoot, which is long gone. I fell in love with that culture. So I kind of like was in the uh, early '80s punk rock scene, mid '80s psychedelic Texas scene, but whole surfers. Uh, Got to know, worked at the clubs, did crappy little flyers. You know, Xerox Flyerland was a lot of fun. Met a ton of bands. Um, Started to sort of improve my poster game. Took it national in the early 90s. Got a big article in Rolling Stone for doing that. Just doing shows at like CBGB's Annex and stuff. Uh, Got a book deal. Decided to grow up a little bit, moved out to the West Coast of San Francisco. Because uh, Austin was kind of like fading at that point. Um, definitely getting uh, gentrified out and priced out. So I moved out to San Francisco. Uh, started a record label, you know, set up a print shop, kept doing posters. Started a record label out here, did a record label for like five years. It was called Man's Ruin. Um, started going to Japan a lot. Started selling my stuff in Japan, going there, doing shows, doing commercial gigs. Um Stumbled across my first vinyl toy over there, as I say, probably 1998 or so. It was the uh, Bounty Hunter uh, kid figure. I still have it. Saw it in a magazine, asked my friends about it. They're like, we know that guy. They took me to meet the guy at Bounty Hunter. He collected my posters. We hit it off. So I did my first actual toy with him as a collaboration. It was a version of the, of the Labbit. That led—and then right around then, Medicom fired up. So that led to doing some gigs with Medicom. So I did— four or five toy releases with Medicom in the early 2000s just for like Japan although I brought some over, tried to sell them nobody liked them, nobody cared then but I was really into it, I thought that the toys had a very promising future I was burned out on the music scene at that point Uh, got out of the music scene, was just sort of doing commercial art and whatever fine art stuff uh, gallery shows and shit like that, but I was really into the toys because it really reminded me of the early days of the punk rock scene, I really liked the energy and I really liked the I've always been a toy collector going back to the eighties cause there's actually a pretty rich history in punk rock of toy collecting Japanese toys in particular, going back to the early eighties. And, um, sort of found my niche with the toys. I really liked it cause the toys let me, you know, I've, i mean, I've always done all kinds of weird stuff, but the toys, like I could do really creative stuff and like have a manufactured product happen and they became really popular. So, um, I really, really like, uh, the toy scene, uh, and just, it, it, you know, I've done way more in the toy scene now. I mean, I continue to do all the other stuff, but the toys are what I really love. And so kind of, you know, I mean, there's a bazillion side trails and side stories and, you know, for weeks on end, but that's kind of the basics of it. So no, no formal training, like I said, high school dropout, went in the military, punk rock scene. That's what sort of created my, the way I approach things and, um, you know, these days, it's kind of weird. I mean, I, I'm still doing really weird shit, but at the same time, you know, uh, my days consist of dealing with, like, all the major movie studios and, uh, you know, licensors and all this insane—and Hello Kid, all this insane shit, like, I actually oversee. I mean, I kid robot. I put together a creative team. I have a pretty free hand, uh, as long as it makes money for the owner, and— um, so you know, on any given day, I'll be dealing with like a huge with Marvel Studios, and then like you know, obscure shit. So uh, really varied experience. I mean, over at Kid Robot I have thoroughly overseen at least probably two thousand product releases in the last five years, both commercial and working with individual artists. So um, pretty, my days are interesting, very interesting.
1: Are you are you still enjoying it with the oh, yeah. the more the- commercial stuff? kind of
3: going from, you know, more of yeah, an yeah. underground start. So the big challenge, you know, maybe, you know, toy collectors piss and moan always, oh, you know, Kid Robot's a Stella, but you got to understand something like, all the glory years of Kid Robot were total chaos, and they made amazing stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but somebody has to pay for that. So you have to understand something like, between the big beginning of Kid Robot and when it finally sort of went tits up in 2014, and I mean, it was two days away from a bankruptcy there was always an investor group behind the company and that investor group at the end of the road lost 18 million Mm dollars in those what was it like nine years so all of that energy and creativity was awesome but like they never made money they just lost millions i mean there was revenue right but at the end of the road the people that funded kid robot paid for the dream they were out like a lot of money So the guy that owns it now came in there, and, you know, he's a businessman. And so his trip is, like, do what you want as long as you make me money. So I do like doing the commercial stuff because, like, the only thing that makes, like, an Artist Dunny series or an Art Dunny or an art piece, like, say, you know, a Candy Bolton piece or a Brant Peters piece or a Jesse Hernandez piece possible is all that sort of mundane Simpson stuff. So so what we try to do is find the best possible mix to make it all happen. And what's been really nice is over time the licensors have been getting looser and looser. So we're actually starting to be able to do like weird SpongeBob toys, and they're completely licensed. They're not a bootleg product. So the original creator's getting their money, the people that own the copyright are getting their money, the artist is getting their money. And to me, that's a goal because our whole aesthetic, like if you look at say the current toy scene, which is fucking awesome again. The really cool stuff is usually a bootleg version of somebody else's shit that's been twisted around in a cool way, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really great, but as someone who has his own IP and have had my shit bootlegged over the years, like it or not, the guy, the guy that created SpongeBob or now his estate, right? They deserve to have their say because SpongeBob was invented by them. And so bootleg is outright boot. So it's really nice because I can legitimize bootlegging now. I can actually do like legit bootleg products. I can imagine art like Candy Bolton's a great artist. I really like her work, right? I can actually get her to do a really weird Hello Kitty thing. That's totally her vision. And it's all legit. Everybody's happy. Everybody's paid. It's a legit product. And anybody that's an IP creator understands, you know, you have a logo that you own, you know, you don't want someone just ripping off your logo. And it doesn't matter if you're big or little, the moral compass is the same. So the commercial, I, I enjoy the commercial aspect because number one is like, um, I like getting a win. So the fact that I can work with these larger entities successfully is a win for me on a personal level, right? And a financial level for everybody. And as time goes on, they're allowing us to do more interesting stuff with their IP, which I think is a win for like whatever artist is involved, because if someone's an independent artist, like most of the toy artists are, for them to have like a Marvel product in their portfolio or something, you know, the United States is like the only country in the world where it's seen as bad to associate yourself with a large successful company. Like in Japan, like Japanese artists are proud to work with a big company because it means that it elevates their status to the status of the big company. Right. That's my approach. I mean, I got paid for the first thing I ever did a million years ago, right? So I have a different viewpoint of, like, commerciality. Just because it's the commercial doesn't mean it has to suck, right? Mm-hmm. If you're a kid that's living in buttfuck Idaho somewhere, you have every right to be able to go into a big box store and find a well-designed product, right? Those kids don't have the luxury of, you know— going online and spending 250 bucks and waiting three years for mighty jacks to deliver something they just don't but they can go into the local target and find a, one of our weird minifigures and they can pay 12 bucks and get it and you know what i'm saying so i have been a populist I, I don't like the exclusivity game it worked for cause awesome exclusive work for him doesn't work for everybody doesn't work for me personally I don't want to have to like uh, sweat blood to get a toy I want. I want to be able to get the fucking toy, right? At an affordable price. So I have a completely different mindset. Like I understand the underground and I understand commerciality. And I think it's allowed me to thrive at a kid robot because I can work both sides of the fence for everyone's mutual benefit. That might sound grandiose, but it is in fact what happens every single day. You know, I make hundreds of decisions decisions every day. millions of dollars worth of merchandise. And so far, you know, the owner's happy. I think some of the fans are happy.
0: You think back to the earlier days of kid robot and they were, they were still kind of, I guess you would say the gateway right, to the designer toy scene here in America. I mean, the Dunnies were available back in the day at places like Urban Outfitters um, and somebody could stumble on those. Now you're just doing that in a way where you're involving pop culture products. You're making it even more accessible because the person doesn't have to ask, what is this? They know what it is from the start.
3: I, I will challenge, I see a lot of people beefing on the internet, but it's like I can show you 50 insane, fully sculpted art dunnies we've done in the last five years that are just as good as anything that was done back in the mythical golden age. People sent Tim to inflate the old kid robot because it's like romanticizing the past. But mm-hmm. if you look at some of those early releases, they were novel, but they were pretty crude in comparison to some of the stuff we're doing now. You know, I'm proud to hook up, like, to put Stephanie Bushima's Santa Muerte dunny up against anything from 2007. I
0: think another super interesting thing you guys have been doing with the Dunny lately has been the, the fine art and pop art kind of connection with the officially licensed product for, you know, Andy Warhol and, you know, the myriad of people that you've done. But I think that's a really cool way to tie in art with the Dunny as well.
3: I mean it all started with the Warhol Foundation. I just cold called them one day and sort of went on this whole rant about like they're like, Well why should we let you do it? I go, Well, you know, Andy he revolutionized pop art because he used industrial methods to make like his limited art editions. We do the same thing. And they're like, ah, we see that connection. And then we did some samples. They liked the way it looked, right? Like, They're like, Andy would have liked this, sort of. He would have liked the industrial aspect of it. So working successfully with the foundation, we've actually become friends over the years. Working successfully with the foundation to do a bunch of, like, you know, somewhat interesting things. That's what led to everything else. The Met called us. We, used, The Smithsonian just called us. I am working with the Tate Modern Gallery in London right now to do a program with them. With the Prado in Spain, like, uh, you know, we're going to do Hieronymus Bosch Dunnies, like with the museum in Spain that has the collection, right? So, and what does that do? Okay, so that does a couple of things. That takes old art, right, and reintroduces in a format for young people that might actually turn them onto that stuff, okay? All right, number one. Number two is it turns on weird snooty rich people to the fact that there's this whole nother world and you're starting to see it work. You know, cost stuff is going for money, right? NFT stuff is going up there. You know, I have an invader plaque that I bought like for fifty bucks ten years ago. I just got offered like twenty grand for it. So a positive aspect for people that are into toys that collect and buy and sell and trade and flip is like Associating with these sort of higher cultural spheres, right? I mean, dude, think about it. Like Sotheby's is fucking selling fucking vinyl art toys, dude. It's crazy, right? Auctioning them. Uh if you have the right stuff in your collection, well, your collection is dramatically in, increased in value, right? You know, I got a four foot cause that I bought for thirty five hundred bucks at Comic Con as first edition. You know, I could go sell that for two hundred grand. I'm not going to, but so there are positive aspects. And what's also interesting is more sort of like higher tone, interesting artists are interested in getting involved in the format. So it's just like, you know, I, I, I used to be on Skullbrand. I used to, you know, collect the Safubi stuff. And I watched Skullbrand go the other way. I watched it just turn into a little circle jerk of six guys bitching about how nothing was authentic anymore. <laughs> and it killed, it killed the scene. It killed it for the toy makers it killed it for the artists. It, cl- it killed it for anybody new that might be interested in coming into the scene. It should be the other way. Like Everybody should be able to get into the scene because that's what it's about. It's, a, it's not about being some miser on your hill of total authenticity because that's not what anything creative is really about. You will find very few artists that have that opinion. It's always just collectors that have that opinion artists want to sell their shit artists want to get paid money artists want to see their shit on every wall in the world so why should like collectors like weird miser collectors who actually the worst ones never actually buy anything <laughs> yeah. seriously yep. the most vocal asshole trolls are the ones that are sitting literally sitting in their mom's basement like with their dick in their hand It's absurd to let them run the scene. So in a way, I'm kind of glad that forums died out with the advent of like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram coming up in the world because it's really opened up the format. If we were still depending on like collector forums to get information on toys, the scene would be completely dead.
0: Totally.
1: Yeah, I I recently got uh, shit on on a Facebook group over like nonsense because they thought I let somebody cut mine over a show or something. And I looked up all these people that were shitting on me, and, like, not one of these people have bought anything from my shop ever. ever. So why the fuck should I care what they say?
3: But, you know, but because the formats make everybody equal, right? And people can't help but, like, rush to defend themselves. And once you defend yourself against a troll, you make, you elevate their power, right? Like, I hate critics. It's like, before you're a critic of a format, you should be successful in that format. Like, before you can criticize movies, go make one. Before you criticize a painter, go do a painting, right? Like, just to sit there and go, well, I can't do, but I can tell. Mm-mm, I don't believe in that at all. At all. I think that's not, because they have no idea the struggle that a lot of people go through to even have the balls to create something and show it to other people. You know, I'm very effort oriented. It's like, I may not, may not like that person's work, but I respect the effort that went into it. Because at the end of the road, that's what's really important. That's the real cost of that. Like they spent part of their life making something to show to other people. So to me, it's about them like using up a portion of their life. It's a permanent cost. Some guy, I might hate that dude's painting, but dude, that guy spent like two weeks of his life working on it. I respect the sacrifice of two weeks of his life when he could have been doing something else.
0: That all ties back to also like you were saying earlier with IPs as well. You know, somebody spent their time developing and coming up with that. They deserve to get that that payment.
3: You know, Marvel has spent like a billion dollars making, you know, the Avengers popular. Not right for you just to totally rip them off. You should have, and you know what? It's not that hard to get a license. It's not that expensive. You can those companies can be open money. You can go to them and go, hey, you know. I want to do this weird thing, this niche market, this thing, it might help your image. Sometimes they say yes.
0: I mean, I really think it's like, as long as you're not trying to, like, hurt their brand in some way or make it, like, against their morale, moral compass or something like that, they're they're pretty open to the ideas as long as you can get to them.
3: And the thing, a lot of people squawk about, well, I should have the freedom to be able to fuck with their shit. And I'm like... I go, the real freedom is, why don't you invent your own stuff? You're free to invent your own things. Or at least be honest about it. Like, a lot of my work is was and is still collage-based, where I use other people's shit, I translated it to make new messages. I never claimed any of that stuff is mine, right? I've always been thoroughly honest, every interview, everything, whenever anybody brings it up, and I've gone to great lengths at times to find the original creators and pay them. Like, I gave money to people in Cuba because their grandfather did that poster for whatever the communists... I mean, I've done shit like that, you know, when it's available. And I've never claimed that No, I did this drawing. Like, if I copied that drawing from something, I will be like, yes, I copied it from this. And I'm at least I'm honest about it. And I think in return for that attitude, like, I've never been fucking sued or fucked with. In fact, a lot of times I've been given, I've been granted license after the fact because they appreciated the work. So you should at least try. So long ramble. I don't have a problem with the commercial aspects of Kid Robot because someone's got to pay the bills. Well, a lot of people they don't understand the.
2: Sometimes you do have to sell something in order to fund the cool things, and that's the. Yeah. That's like kind of like the craziest thing. It's like. They want to be the gatekeepers of these things and they just can't just admit, yeah, you know, sometimes you got to sell, you know, the pop stuff in order for the underground stuff to even be shown.
0: Yeah, and I really think if you think back to to most scenes that are cool and underground, you know, the thing that kind of stops them from growing a lot of times is, is that idea of gatekeeping.
2: Well, yeah, it, everybody everybody wants to be the person who says, "I like them first, and then they don't want to buy anything past the first
3: seven inch, the first demo.
0: Everything sucks since their first album, right? Like- yeah, exactly. I, mean,
3: I, I think the game is just to throw everything you can at the wall and see what sticks. And I think for me, the true value in all the creative arts is the creativity of it is the doing, not the sort of the end result. I mean, at least, you know, I'm not that interested in my work once it's done. Like, I don't display it all over the house. I don't wear my own shit on T-shirts. I don't even have my toys out, right? I have other people's stuff. For me, I like doing it. I like getting paid for it getting rewarded for it like anybody would. You, you show me an artist that doesn't like getting rewarded, you know, they don't exist. So, you know, or they're real and you have never, never will hear about them because they're just in a hole somewhere doing their own shit for themselves um, forever. So anybody that puts their shit out into public view, so it's just weird. Like all, it's just like dudes that like fat motherfuckers that sit around and like talk about what this coach should have done or what that player should do. This motherfucker, you're not in, you're not out in that game. Like you're not, you didn't devote your fucking life to playing a sport. You got nothing to say about this. You know, that's my opinion. As unpopular as it may be with certain people.
0: Hey, sometimes somebody's just got to tell them like it is, you know, and put a different perspective out there so people can hear it.
3: And you <laughs> know what? People have been telling me that my shit sucks for 35 years, and, but it's been 35 years, and, like, I'm still turning the work down. So I'm doing something right. Like, go do your fucking thing.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I think another, another thing that's interesting about your career is, you know, you're kind of bringing back posters, whether you want to claim that or not, but you were kind of the person that kind of helped bring that into forefront and then make it a thing again. And then you kind of transitioned to the toy world and you kind of became a part of that early part of that movement as well. So, I mean, you've kind of always been a part of the new frontier and you've always pushed that medium to like a new level. So I think that's something that can be said as well.
3: You know, you know mentally restless, you know, I mean, I always <sighs> It's like my cycle has always been like I've gone into something, right? Like, I don't know. You know, it could be anything. Like uh, mid-'80s, it was like 1950s porno. So I started, like, getting into buying old men's magazines and paperback books and Betty Page shit. And it started showing up in my drawings. So the way I always work is I usually start collecting something or obsessing on something. And then at some point, i like, well, I want to do that. And so I'll buy my half-assed version of it and put it out and sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't but it's not been the same thing and you know and as far as style is like i don't really have a style i mean my style consists of like my limitations within whatever kind of style i'm trying to work in does that make sense so I have a real ass backwards view of how all this sh- i always learn the sort of reproduction stuff first you know like, I want to do t-shirts so I got a job at a t-shirt place right shit like that so my approach has always been like, like super different I think than a lot of people's and I think the, 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 the sort of like the ability to uh, sort of jump on new trends or switch up things or whatever the fuck just comes from that that is like it's kind of not really about me it's kind of about the thing or the stuff going on like I don't have like a vision if that makes sense like I like all kinds of random weird shit, and I like doing my own joke versions of it, and it kind of turns out that enough other people like it too to where I can like make a living off of it. That's about as sort of deep as it gets really on a per- personal level, which I don't know if that's good or if that's sad. But that, that is the truth. Like, I, I don't have some great artistic vision, man. I'm just, like, having a good time.
0: Well, I mean, that's something to be said for just having a good time and being able to figure out how to turn that into a living, right? You know, it's not uh, all about having that vision sometimes. It's just about making cool things happen and hopefully other people like them,
3: you know? And also, man, like, I had, like, the shittiest jobs in the world until I was, like, 30. So, like, I don't ever want to do that again. So... You know, I can make decent money, like not having a shitty job. That's like kind of a big deal. I mean, that's a small aspiration, but it works for me.
0: So um, I also noticed, you know, because you mentioned this earlier about the trying to transitioning into NFTs, but I noticed you had mentioned on, I believe it was on Facebook, that you were kind of taking a slightly different approach to this whole process. A lot of people are putting out... Uh, I guess you would say expensive items, but you said something along the lines of you were planning to make things more accessible and then hope over time that they gain, gain value.
3: Yeah. I mean, I got, different, I got, I mean, I, I, I'm going to try different things on different platforms. Right. So it's like, okay, so sort of the middle of the road is going to be on rareable and on rareable, I'm going to put up stuff like, like redone, cleaned up versions of stuff that people have seen before. And I'm going to just start everything at like one year or theme. Okay, just one, like not fifty cents, but just one erythrium, and it sells cool, but now now if that stuff sells consistently, right, then cool. I'll just sort of keep feeding that slot in there, right? And and then I got I just got a foundation in, right? So I'm gonna to look for foundation, right, which is one of one only. So I'm actually have been drawing new things that have never been done before on any format, which I'm gonna make available only as a one-of-one on that platform. So it'll be, like, a real one-of-one, right? And I'm going to, like, reserve those pretty high. If it doesn't sell, that's cool. I can just use it for a bunch of merch somewhere else. If it does sell, then cool. I know that, like, once in a while, I might be able to sell one for, like, real money over there, as long as it's really a new original piece, right, of quality done for that. So if someone's willing to drop fucking 8 Erythrium or 10, you know, you know, they're so will drop 15 grand on a piece well they're going to get something that's decent right then i'm working with an outfit called the telos foundation t-e-l-o-s and they've got their own currency going we're going to be doing i'm going to be helping them with marketing we're building an auction site i'm introducing them to artists like me kind of like mid to lower range underground type artists right they're going to offer they're offering a great deal over there um and their coin is completely convertible to Ethereum because they're both on the EOS blockchain, yada yada. Anyways, but that's an opportunity to, to sort of be at, into a currency at the beginning of its life cycle, and be there, you know, as a as a token holder, whatever the jargon is for that thing. And what I'm going to be doing over there, that's the platform we'll all be offering, like. A one of one of something famous, like say the image from the Soundgarden poster, right? Or like a or like the Labit, and that one of one will be super expensive. But then it'll have an addition of it, right? So if you just like are like a toy collector and like you want a Labit NFT, you'll be able to get it for like a totally reasonable bid. So I'm gonna do three different kinds of things, and I'm working on getting. You know, 3D things done that rotate and all that bullshit, too. So, what you're going to see from me is I'm going to test out all the different platforms, all the different price points over time. Because luckily, I've got 30 years with a shit stashed, right? So, you know, I got an endless amount of crap. And my approach is like, if it sells awesome, I'll try to like so set up, support, and maintain a market for my stuff at different levels, right? Where it's reasonable, it's not a scam. And if it doesn't work, it's okay, because I do just fine doing real-world stuff, too. But I think NFT, people are overcomplicating it. They're freaking the fuck out on it, don't know. I don't understand, but it's really a really simple thing. It's just a different format. It's a different kind of money, but it's real. It's, in, it's just in that, it's in the internet world, not, the, you know. I, have, I love it. Uh, telos, which if it takes off, I'll go exclusive to at some point. They're uh, ecologically, they're pretty sound. Their energy usage is really low because instead of doing like a thousand dudes in the Philippines on shitty computers, right, they've got 20 supercomputers, right? So their, their computing power is really controlled, really condensed, and really efficient compared. So they're like, they rate super high on the energy efficiency scale, right? So that kind of thing is taken care of.
1: Do you think any of the sales are like smoke and mirrors, like... Like, for instance, like the super plastic one, I kind of had a hard time believing that was a real.
3: Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, There's a, I could totally talk uh, shit about super plastic being a fake company 100%. (laughs) Get Paul all cranky at me because, like, you know, nobody's Kickstarter goes from like 18 grand to 400 grand in 24 hours. It just doesn't happen. (laughs) Right. Uh, So that shit's been a rigged game since the beginning. Uh, That being said, you know, um, I love Paul. You know, Paul's a, you know, he was a great guy to me. Um, I got nothing against him personally, you know, super plastic, like seems fun. I got nothing bad to say about it. I haven't really been tracking them. So well, how, what did they, they did a, what they did, the Googie Mon or something for how much did they go for?
1: I think they did. I don't remember which character it was, but it was two jankies and they think they went for like 36,000 each.
3: That might be real. I mean Paul Paul's always had uh, contacts into the digital world. I mean he started with hardware and stuff, so he's a forward thinking guy. I'm sure his investor you know, he did that whole thing with that like um, thing that was gonna be like another sort of social media platform. So it could very well be that those are real. There's a lot of crypto guys that have a lot of money. Paul's a charming huh. guy. Is super plastic a good business model over time? Who knows, right? We'll see. I don't think they're doing... I mean, I know they put a lot of effort into creating their sort of virtual uh, character thing, Mm -hmm. you know, which that only really works if you could sell it to somebody at some point. And the problem I have with the super plastic image is that, like, it's really misogynistic in a weird way. Uh, It's kind of really violent in a kind of unpleasant way. So to me... Super plastic is not addressing the female population at all. It's it's really addressing a really narrow band. Okay. If you, if you really look at their work, you want to get into this? Yeah, yeah sure. So if you look at like, I mean this the jankies are cool design, nice little platform, you know. Mm-hmm. Um works good, looks good, decent artist selection. That's fine. You know, congrats on doing the new uh, gorilla stuff. Hope it hope it does well for them. My issue with super plastic is like, okay, so they're doing this thing where they want to have a virtual virtual spokesperson, right? Their, their dream is to popularize the two digital characters and then get deals from big companies to sell purses or whatever, right? Virtual influencer, that's, that's, the, that's the whole thing they, they put a big pile of stuff into. So number one is, is that really a thing? I don't think so, okay? And number two is, if you look at all the virtual influencer posts… Okay, so there's absolutely no female component in there. And I don't mean just a female character, but, like, there's no messaging that's gentle, right? There's no messaging about equality. There's no messaging about empowering 50% of the population or involving 50% of the population. There's just sort of this generic, really, really mean, like, fuckboy thing. Like, they're like rich fuckboys that are wearing bling and killing people and doing drugs and being kind of homoerotic, which is fine with me, but in a really kind of a mean way, like, like I just don't like the vibe. Like, who who looks at those Googie mon things on Instagram and goes, like, that's what I aspire to? It's really kind of like American Psycho, kind of, really, if you look at it. It feels mean and sterile and misogynistic and anti-intellectual and anti-life to me, you know, in a really, and I'm talking like on a weird metal, a weird metal level, right. Um, For an advertising campaign. Like if I was a major advertiser, I would not advertise with them because they're giving off a negative hostile message. And in light of what's going on in the world, I think we've had enough of that for a while, you know, between like the almost, takeover of nationalism and hate, right, in governments around the world and the fucking pandemic, all right, and the shit show it's going to cost for a lot of poor people for the next 10 to 15 years. Like, we don't need any more negative messaging, bro. We're living in it. We need some positivity. We need some color and some life and some organic, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I mean— I, I I look at those, those ads they put out. I don't really understand them either, to be honest with you. Like I look at them, I'm just like, what is this really selling to whoever's consuming it? Uh, so I have the same kind of retain. Like
3: selling that weird sort of like smug, you know, fuck boys, frat boy, like uh, we're entitled male creatures that get away with death and destruction because we're, we have so much money, we can throw it away. It's a really sort of disgusting vibe in light of what's going on in the world.
0: I was assuming that I just didn't get it because I am I think they were targeting like people that are like 10 years younger than me or something, 15 years younger than me. But, uh, you know, I, I kind of get what you're saying now that you've said it. <laughs>
3: no, because you know what the young people want to, they want like cottagecore. They want like to live in their cottage with their animals and make bread and be all like safe and warm and comfortable. They don't want to like, be doing really harsh drugs at evil nightclubs and like killing things with axes. Like that's just so fucking stupid.
1: Like insane clown posse stuff.
3: (laughs) Yeah. For like, I don't know, like weird people that like would, you know, like think that having a gold chain, uh, it it is like the end all. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I I really, I'm really puzzled where we're going now I don't know if that is a whole, an outgrowth of like midlife crisis mode on their part. I mean, Paul's a little bit old and a little bit successful, I think, to be had. So maybe that's coming out of a freaking out or something. I don't know. I just don't know where that's coming from. And it's just like it get, to me it just gives off a kind of a fucking mean shitty vibe and I'm not into it. But I do like the janky. The janky's a cool design. It's cute, you know? It works well with art. You know, I would stop doing all that Googiemon shit and just concentrate on, like, the janky.
1: I agree. I think it's it's kind of a waste. And I kind of thought maybe that was their digital personas, and I was like, well, I've met these guys a handful of times, and I don't see them as that's them so i didn't really get where these characters were coming from
3: you know so i don't know i mean what you know and i don't really i don't really so you know i live in my bubble i don't really track like janky them i mean how is the brand doing are they popular the collectors do people like it is it new collectors old collectors what do you guys think about it you're you know you're more in play than i am with that shit having a store and stuff
1: it seems it's more new collectors um a lot of the kid robot dunny people I think came over to it, and then newer people that maybe came from Funko started collecting. Um, it didn't do well for me in my shop. It, it did okay. Um, I eventually had to stop carrying wholesale because the wholesale emails go out an hour before the release, and then if the release sells out, sometimes they'll change it to, it's actually a pre-order.
3: It's not a release. So it was kind of confusing. So they're they're What they're doing is last minute manufacturing because they don't have enough money to really have a supply chain going on.
1: Well, and, and then if it doesn't, if it's not a really good seller, it's marked half off for like the special clearance sale for three days. And then it's below what I was paying wholesale. So I'm like, I can't really, can't really so work with this I, model.
3: All the lessons I've learned, like running kid robot now for five years. Um, those are all signs of like, they are living hand to mouth on their end. You know, I mean, are they still doing kickstarters, or is that, or are they finally just actually like a real business now? I think they're done. So, I mean, that's cool, but that's that. Those are all the signs of, it, you know, it's not really working. And so it's weird that they're spending all that money on now that digital stuff on Instagram, which you know they're probably paying out the ass, you know, to have it promoted and stuff. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's an investor, I mean, obviously there's an investor behind it. Mm-hmm. I think the investor is probably into it for like, I'd say, I mean, five to seven million at this point, if I'm remembering it right, you know, and, you know, I know it's kind of a limited market to try to work that game, but I mean, I wish them all the best of luck. They're not competition for us, that I can tell. So, you know.
0: I think when the when the Jakey first came out, you know, they, were, they came out with their pretty, pretty decently strong artist list. They had a good decent push on what they were doing. Uh, but I think as they continued on with the multiple series, it, it started to they started including a lot of the same artists over and over again. And then people started it just feels like the designer toy world kind of turned away from it a little bit in a way. And the new collectors continued to to stay with it. But I think the old, older designer toy collectors, maybe Dunny collectors and those kind of folks started to look towards other stuff that was being made. Versus,
3: And I'm telling you right now, dude, there's a lot of cool shit happening right now. I mean, there's so much quality stuff coming out of Southeast Asia. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, those guys are fucking ain't killing it, man. Their shit beautifully done. The sculpts are fantastic. The artists are fantastic. The ideation behind it, a lot of stuff is really fantastic. Like, man, mega respect to all those guys, man. That shit is just, you know, awesome. I just, more and more I'm seeing... Little dude, yeah, dudes I never heard of coming out with the most killer fucking shit. So it's like, like yeah, it's like, for that, you know?
1: that's like all I really care anymore. I there's, there's like a handful of US companies that I carry, but it's all mostly, yeah, the guys out of China.
3: Yeah, I went over there for, I mean, I would be over there, I would have been over there this year except for the fucking COVID. because I've been working with dudes over there. I mean, we opened up into China, we're doing good over there. And I've got some other projects going on with over there that are like in stasis because of the plague, but. I went to the... It's interesting. I went to the first Shanghai, you know, conference right? Like, four or five years ago, and it sucked, right? There was nothing there. Like, Jesse Rio was there, like, selling his little vampire toys, and there was some... College, it was nothing going on. And then, like, the last show I went to, which would have been, like, about a year and a half ago, I think it was three or whatever, like, the, the Beijing toy show, it was off the hook. So it's like, they went from, like, zero to fucking, like, hero in, like, three years over there. And dude you talk about like sculptors and not just for urban design like just dudes like doing like I make weird animal sculptures. the sculpts over there are fucking crazy dude yeah,
0: the, those guys really know how to work the, the digital aspect of things a lot of times and even the people that are still hand sculpting this stuff is crazy over
3: there. no you. I mean you see their prototypes in the flesh and you're it's like how the fuck could someone conceive of that that's so insanely nicely done because a lot of times you know shit's like really intricate it's not that good right it's just a blob but over there, you got guys doing insanely intricate stuff, but it all flows together so fucking perfectly that, like, you get lost in it, but in a good way, you know? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, everything, I mean, all the really, really killer shit, except for my stuff, yeah, I think, <laughs> coming out of China and Southeast Asia. Like, I'm seeing guys from the Philippines and, and like, you know, Malaysia and, and or in Thailand just doing fucking great shit, man. You know, Taiwan, like, that. it's it's there a couple of years, man, where they're really doing some killer stuff.
1: You, you don't seem to release a lot of your own toys except for through, like, Black Book. Um, are you kind of more just focusing on the, the Japanese Tofubi for your own releases?
3: Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, is that, like, I don't, you know... I, I, like, I'm so busy now that I can't do direct sales anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm not gonna make any toys and like sort of deal with the back end anymore i just it's just i just don't want to do it so and also it's just like you know i like black book because that guy's awesome and the quality of the shit he makes is fucking out of sight dude got a new figure coming out soon it's like the little bunny rabbit with a bong um it's gonna be killer it's gonna be just as good as the pig so you know I'm going to continue to do one or two toys with them every year, add to the character roster, you know? I mean, we've done hundreds of releases. They're all fucking beautiful. I mean, he gets that Marvel Okinawa guy to do the most insane hand-painted ones. You know, his wife is becoming, like, a really skilled painter. She's painting a lot of them. Um, I couldn't be happier. And I like the fact that they're kind of like, you know, you can get them if you really want them, but you've got to go to like a little bit of effort, right? Just enough you know, to make it worthwhile. Um, So I'm going to keep doing stuff with him. Right. Because the thing is, you know, I've been dealing, I've dealt with Japan, you know, I've dealt with all the guys in Japan. The guy's a dreamboat. It's just like, you know, he just does it and does it and does it. And he does it right. And he's, he's into selling stuff in the U S he comes to all the shows. Mm -hmm. Like he's just doing it correctly. In my opinion, he's not being an obtuse asshole about things right? The guy's super easy to work with, you know? I give him a great deal. I don't want any money. I just have him send me, like, X amount of pieces on each run, you know, which I then, like, sell wholesale to the Visible Vibrations guy to sell on his site. So it's like, the box comes, I give it to him, I get money. It's easy, and I keep it for myself. So, for me, it's that. I I am probably going to be producing some stuff in China, and then, you know, once I can start going back over there again, Mm -hmm. So our, you know, um, I I think I have representation in China, and I do stuff in China a lot now, and I think um, on the back end, you know, behind the scenes. um, And I think that once things clear up with travel restrictions, because uh, the U.S. component of the guys I work with in China has been stuck in Chicago for the last year. So once he's back in in country and I can go back over there, we're probably going to do a major thing with, like, Labbit in China. Mm Mm-hmm. Like we've been we've had some offers and some approaches. So I'll be doing some some stuff in China. But it won't probably won't come into the US. It will probably just be for China, which actually interests me. I want to do something totally different for a totally different universe over there. Because the Chinese market is really weird what they like and they don't like. It's usually based on the character. They don't ever care about the context. So what's interesting about China, that's why I like Funko field. Because all they wanted were Iron Man toys. They didn't care about like anything else from Iron Man. They just liked Tony Stark. And like China's weird, like it's a very story. So like when I went over there the first couple of times, like there was just all this Iron Man hack stuff happening, right? And I was watching the lines and watching the purchases at the shows, it's all women buying Iron Man toys, which is like crazy, right? So I went up to these. So I started going up to these women and going, like, "Why are you? Why do you like Iron Man?" And they're like, "Oh, well, because he would be the perfect husband." I'm like, "What?" They're like, "Yeah, he's like a hero, like a warrior hero, and he's like really, really rich and kind of good looking." So there's a whole different reason why Iron Man toys sell in China than they sell in the U.S right, has mm-hmm. all to do with Marvel or superhero movies it's just like, he's an idealized character that they aspire to like be attached to, in a completely different way than you would ever think of right, so for example like Disney stuff, right, so we were in talks with Disney China for a while, and we're talking about like Bambi right, so like Bambi, yes I go, so, and what about Thumper, and like what's, who's Thumper So they don't care about the movie or the connection of the friendship between Thumper and Bambi or any of that stuff. They're just like Chinese people like the deer character. They don't care about the rabbit character. So they actually are buying the character sometimes. (laughs) Any sort of story or context. So the Chinese market is a little bit odd. So what you have to do is ask a lot of questions, right? And... There's a robust sense of humor, so the Chinese market, they like it when, you know, things are fat and sloppy and weird, and, you know, there's some, you know, so Labbit actually works really well over them, because they like the character, they like the fact that he's kind of a slob sometimes, so of all the stuff I've tried over there, Labbit has been the most successful. So, it's really, the Chinese market is really interested in that.
1: I would but definitely do a, a clear Labbit with things inside, because everybody eats that up.
3: Yeah, so, you know, so we'll see. There's more of those coming from Kid Robots, so, you know, we're, I'll milk that so it fucking falls over. Um, so, you know, so but you got to keep an open mind. So if I was going into China with some real specific mission, right, like, this is my character and I'm going to make it work this way, it's not going to work. You have to go over there and just be fluid about things and just enjoy the whole process and the fact that you can make a toy for China and mm-hmm. keep your mind open to what they want,
1: right? It definitely seems like you have to sell it in China, though, because I've tried to make toys for China because we buy a lot of we sell a lot of Chinese, you know, produced toys here in the U.S. And so I tried to, like, create a toy that I thought people in China would like and almost nobody in China bought it. But I think it's the fact that I'm not selling it in China.
3: I mean, with the, you know, like I sell a lot of like prints over there, like 2D artwork and they just, you know, what's the most popular is like sort of Big Daddy Roth Monsters like Hot rock monsters and stuff, mm-hmm. they don't know anything about it. They don't know anything about car culture, they don't know anything about Big Daddy Rock. They just like the monsters. Whereas, I was over there, you know. Whereas, if I would go over there and try to do like you know, it's Chinese Zodiac, they'd be like, This is gay, we don't want this, right? So, it's just it's like they seem to want stuff that has nothing to, a is like 100% American, right? Made in America by Americans, and two has nothing to do with China. Just like you know, you know us. Like you know, anything that comes from Japan is exotic and weird, even though like it might just be the biggest piece of crap to the Japanese people. You
0: know? It's like when Domo came over, right? It's just like a, you know, like an ad for a TV channel over there. <laughs> and then over here, it's like, oh, this cool character.
3: <laughs> no, I thought we my first trip to China to Japan. Like my first trip to Japan, I, I was really into Hello Kitty stuff for weird reasons. As I went over there and hooked up with these dudes, and they're like, okay, crazy American artist, I mean, what kind of wacky shit do you want to do? You know. And they pulled out the, and, you know, the tourist was like, you want to go to Fuji? You want to do the, you know, I'm like, I want to go to Puro Land, which is like the weird shitty, like Hello Kitty theme park. And they just like literally like dropped their glasses on the floor. And they're like looking at me all serious, like, are you a pedophile? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what's wrong with you i'm like what they go hello kitty is for like little kids and like it's for poor people like that's why the why would no like they were appalled so because you know my view of what hello our view of hello kitty you know yeah it's the you know. and then you just have to keep an open mind you know and i eventually sort of convinced them that hello kitty was cool you know because she has no mouth yet she can scream um
0: yeah, it's definitely always interesting to see what uh people absorb as like Big American culture, or vice versa, if we how we absorb other cultures as well, you know, and it could be something that seems totally stupid to the people living in that culture, but uh, to us, it seems cool, or vice versa.
3: Are you
1: working with um, uh, Polyphony over there?
3: Yes, they're okay. excellent, excellent people. They're doing it completely right. Their gallery spaces are amazing. Yeah, they're really, really, really cool people. They're really investing a lot into building up a you know, not a fly-by-night scene at all. Like they have long-term plans. You know, to build a lifestyle lifestyle brand. They represent me over there. Um, Kid Robot does all a ton of ton of business with them. You know, so it's been a really good. It was great meeting them, and you know, we've hooked up and business has been really good. Really That's great. awesome.
1: Yeah, they just um, ordered some Super Crash from uh, Josh Divine, the toy we made with him, yep, um, okay. to see
3: how it does. Good. Is it the Astro Boy one?
1: Uh, the Mario one.
3: Okay, yeah, good.
1: The uh, unofficial Mario
3: one. <laughs> I'm am w- wagging my finger. No, hey, if you uh, can Josh, is get a, Josh is a good, a good guy. Man. So good. I hope hope you have much success with that.
1: Yeah, we're gonna try to continue the crash line. The we really are trying to get licenses, and I, I either can't get anybody to respond, or they don't want to see their character crashed or in like a fail pose. So it's a little bit hard to sell. But yeah, so we're in that kind of moral decision of. Make it or not, and it
3: seems we just keep making it. A Delaware corporation, so they can't—they can't, they can't track. Do it all through blockchain. Do the thing and never catch you. Well,
1: we've kind of found that if there's not a face, then that's like most of the IP I would think would hold up in in court. So. And it's satire. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So 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 far, no uh, no bad letters or court hearings. <laughs> <laughs>
3: No, that those are that's that'll be a cool line because the Astro Boy was fucking great, and I saw that Mario thing online, so excellent.
1: Yeah, next next in the pipeline we're thinking is Mazinger. Going to stick with the uh, Japanese robots.
3: That'll be good. You could do a big fat. You could do the old style Tetsujin Twenty Eight, where he's like just all fucking around, got a big round body, and that would be funny. <laughs> See, that's the connection between that people don't really remember between like punk rock, actually, and you know, early punk rock, and toys. So it's like the early punk rock scene. There were some core people in the scene like. Uh, Tim from the Big Boys and Glenn from the Misfits that were really into Japanese anime and collected Japanese toys, tin toys and Godzilla stuff and all that sort of early Bandai uh, diecast shit. So, like, when the Misfits would come through town, like, they would come to my house and I would sell them toys. Because, like, That's I'm selling toys. So I actually you have memories of Glenn Danzig on his hands and knees in my living room, like, with a little Mark Godzilla, like... like Like you know, (laughs) tripping on it and playing with it and stuff, so so there's a bin of there's so I think there's the same kind of vibration energy I think between the today's toy scene and kind of like the cool scene 35 years ago.
1: Well, it's funny for the the Mazinger, we were thinking about doing a a misfits colorway and calling it the the Danziger. Do it, but I don't maybe they'll do a licensed one or an exclusive that would be
3: cool. Just change it just enough, man, so that nobody can complain.
1: Um, so I, I kind of noticed that the like the smorkin stuff died down a while ago. Were you just bored with that, or you think you
3: you did it enough well, in order to move on? It was like it was a kind of confluence. So it's like so like you know at the at, so it was always Blissett's the kid robot. So at the the last couple of years of the old kid robot, right? they were kind of like the investors actually hired like weird people from like apparel companies to run the thing. Right. And they tried to like make everything really commercial. So smoking is bad. So nothing can be smoking anymore. And so sales naturally went in the toilet with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the first couple of years or so of me taking over, it would just bad be bad form to pimp a lot of my own toys through kid robot. You know what I'm sure. saying? I would have gotten like a lot of shit if I'd done a major push, but slowly started bringing back the Labbit products, making him smoke again, and they instantly sell out. The trend is uh, going to continue. Um, no one's really bitching about it. Everyone's just liking it. So you'll see more and more Labbit stuff and smorkin Labbit stuff as time goes on. There's going to be a whole line of the Andy Warhol license on the Labbit. Oh, nice. Now, those will not be smoking because they can't have, you know, sure. because they, they don't want it. But the, the, there's going to be... You know, I mean, I run a two-year line plan, so right now I'm planning stuff for Q3 2023. Um, so, you know, we try to, you know, even though it always, like, dies in development, right, it always goes a shit during the development stage, like, we at least do the planning. So, I would say there's probably 50 Labit products coming out over the next two to three years, and half of them should be smoking ones.
1: And since the New Deal, do you still retain your, your Labit IP in the U.S.?
3: Oh, yeah, I'm the sole copyright holder. Yeah, I get It's, it's mine worldwide, you know. But I'll sell, I mean, I'll probably sell it at some point. I may sell the Chinese rights off. How's, you know, like, um... I mean, because, you know, I'm 60. I'm going to, you know, I don't want to be doing this shit when I'm, like, 80 years old, bro. <laughs> if I got another five, six years, then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to turn it off and go move to Portugal or something. Sell that cause. I got heritage bugging me about that all the time.
1: How's uh, uh, COVID affected the toy making with, you know, I'm sure nobody's in the office or anything anymore. Uh, it's been
3: awesome for us. So what it allowed me to do, which I wanted to do for a long time, is so we were super fucked for decent people on the team because I was limited to hiring people that lived in the greater Denver area. Not exactly a hotbed of creativity. No. Okay. No, no, you know, no... Uh, no diss on Denver, but... So, and I've been wanting to go full-time remote for a while because I had to go out there. I spent, like, you know, third of my life in hotel rooms because I had to go out there all, you know, like, twice a month for extended stays, right, and all the stuff. This is getting old. So, for our company, the COVID lockdown has been a blessing. So, what it allowed me to do is get rid of the physical office permanently. Huge savings and overhead. Fucking huge, okay? Everybody can work from home. It allowed me to weed out the incompetence like that. So everyone's working from home full time, everyone's become much more creative and productive because like they're not spending three hours a day commuting or eating some shitty lunch. You know what I'm saying? Like they're comfortable. They're at home in their original creative environment, working at their, you know, working the hour, you know what I'm saying? They're working hours, but they're working in their worlds. Okay. So overhead went to like zero, right? Like physical overhead went from whatever, a half a million dollars a year to zero poof, like that. Okay. We went from physical servers which were fucked and always having to be replaced and always being too cloud-serving. So our cost for the servers went was reduced by like 70% for better service and unlimited storage. All right? I mean, we have terabytes of shit, right, that we have to store. Um, sales are up because people are at home. They want to buy their shit. And they've actually got, you know, and we don't, our products don't, sell to people that are making a minimum wage. I'll be real honest about it, right? Like very few broke-ass people, you know, poor people, disadvantaged people are spending like sizable amounts of money on designer toys. Our products sell primarily to exactly the kind of people that have jobs that allow them to work from home. So since they're no longer traveling to conventions and spending all that money traveling and all that, they've got more money, our sales are up. And This is true for NECA controls a gaming company and an action figure company, right? And Loot Crate too, right? Huh? And yeah. Loot Loot Crate also. Right? Crate's doing good again. We cleaned up Loot Crate. I work with them. We do. We we actually design a lot of their products for them. They just so,
1: did, you just did a like a horror version of Loot Crate too. I thought I saw. Yeah,
3: we got like uh, what's the next one? We have Andy Warhol Loot Loot, loot box coming. Up. We did uh, My Chemical Romance series of Loot boxes thematic to the albums so we're designing some more interesting stuff for Loot Crate so all the companies that are direct to consumer online sales company, you know what I'm saying that component is through the roof Mm for Robot and all the other companies big box stores sales have increased especially big box stores that like have good fulfillment online right so like Target has expanded dramatically for us Plush we're doing a ton of business with Plush and Targets okay because people like plush makes them feel better. So in a weird fucked up way, the pandemic has really benefited Kid Robot. And on a creative level, it's allowed me to hire people outside of the Denver area. So we got people in Brazil working for us now, right? So like, I'm not limited to geographic location to find a good creative to add to the team, right? So my new hires can live anywhere. And what's really nice is that like, you know, you don't pay the most of anybody in the world, but if some dude's living in Brazil, would would be like okay, money here is awesome for him, right? Mm-hmm. So, and generally, people in places like that like, are more highly motivated to do good work because they realize, oh, I got this fucking killer deal going on, right? So, it's allowed me to find it's allowed me to find more creative. Uh, it, it's basically expanded my hiring pool to the entire planet. Okay, which if you have to hire employees, is pretty fucking awesome, dude. Right? Yeah. So, you know, and it's so, so we actually do run like a completely distributed paperless like system of, you know, I've like got, I'd, I'd say probably direct contact on an hourly basis with a team about 15 people between the creative department and development and the contacts that like we create stuff. You know, and it's fucking great, man. You know, Zoom works, Microsoft Teams works, it all works. You know, we have multiple meetings a day with the different licensors. We have a meeting schedule. It's become really efficient um, and really easy. And uh, you, know, basically, you know, we have more. You know, we have more money to make stuff and, and hire people, and we're spending less money on like some of the. Board.
0: And I think, uh, like you're saying, with increased sales, you know, across the designer toy world, I think we're seeing that with all the stuff that is coming out and there's more and more of it that seems to be coming on the way. And lots of smaller brands have been able to kind of pick up and grow. Um, During this pandemic, I think it's been good for collector markets. I mean, even in our last episode, we were talking about things like trading card market taking off and, you know, all these different collectible type markets seem to be flourishing during the, during the pandemic. So I think while the pandemic has not been fun and it hasn't been great for a lot of people, uh, collector markets seems to be, um, area of growth for a lot of people.
3: Now that's the good news. The bad news is, is the same, the sort of breakdown of logistics trains is starting to hit now, starting to impact now. Not very sexy thing to think about. Like I have friends in the commercial paper company, uh, they, uh, they're commercial paper dealers and, like on a massive scale, like for cement factories and stuff. And like, so the cost of raw materials and the cost of transport is mm-hmm. going up really fast.
0: Yes, very much so.
3: Very fast. So, uh, this is going to be reflected. Prices are going to have to go up. I mean, the toy market has the has been laboring under a pricing structure that was set in place a decade ago. A minifigure should be ten bucks, right? Not going to happen anymore. So, one thing that is a negative, you know, and it'll it'll have impact on the business for a while, is that prices are going to have to go up across the board soon because the cost of I mean, uh, shipping costs have gone up like twenty-five percent. That's a lot, dude. Okay, in the last year. All the all the factories in China are coming back and going, we have to revise your pricing up, you know, because they had to obtain raw materials. Yeah. So everything in a supply chain is more expensive now. So that will be reflected final cost of consumer. We've done we've done everything to circumvent and we've solved a lot of problems, right? By sort of being more efficient in design and construction and all that kind of stuff. But there's a limit to that. So at some point, just when the raw materials increase a certain amount, you've got to increase the price of the unit because it takes a minimum amount of raw materials to make something. Shit like the paper for, you know, our paper costs for the, you know, for the stock costs for like the packaging, same old package, right, is tripled. Okay, and that actually ends up being substantial because it's not just the cost of the materials, it's also the cost of everything else associated with the materials. So prices, unfortunately, are probably going to go up the next year by, I'd say, you know, 10 to 20% across the board.
0: I'm glad that uh, you're saying that, Frank, because I said something very similar in the last episode, and it just has more weight coming from somebody like you versus myself.
3: (laughs) No one's getting ripped off, Ben. It's just that we have to pay more for the stuff, but the people that run the company, you know, they need to make the same amount of margin off the goods, or else Mm -hmm. there's no reason to, like, you know, expend the capital to make the goods, right? There's got to be a return. It's not... You can't just break even. You have to profit. So in order to continue to profit, which, by the way, I want to tell you this, that, like, one thing you got to remember about like Kidrobot, it lost money until 2014, until 2000, end of 2013. 2014, the first year in the new regime broke even. We've made a profit every year since. It's allowing the company to, to survive because the people that own the company are not interested in, a, in being, a, like, a charity, believe you me. Um, so, you know, a lot of the moves that we make at Kid Robot are so that we can continue to grow and profit, even when, you know, things get, things happen like the current, like uptick, you know, next couple now things will get back to normal in a couple of years, and maybe prices may go back down, but I wouldn't count that. Yeah.
0: And I think too, um, you know, kind of we were talking about that kind of like swell of the smaller brands or independent companies, um, you know, these costs may start to limit their ability to create at the level that they're creating if, you know, you know, if it's costing 25% more, it might take some of it away, but hopefully they can survive, you know, throughout this whole process.
3: What happens is that like, and I've experienced this with my record label. So it's like, if you're a small specialty company and you're dealing in runs of a hundred or something, right? Like all oh, these guys are okay. Like, you know, you don't have to make that much profit to be successful, right? Like it's not that big of an investment. It doesn't involve that many people. It's a doable project and you can kind of like pump out like, toy after toy after toy after toy forever and stay at a certain kind of limit, right? And even raise your prices after a while. Where it always falls apart is if one of those companies becomes super popular and tries to expand, they try to make bigger additions, more frequent additions, more complicated deals, that's when it collapses because it never scales right without investment. If you're living project to project, you can do that forever, right? If you're happy doing that, and if that meets all the requirements of the producers and the artists, where these companies get in. But it was was irritating to me because, like, people are like, look at this. This thing from Company X is really cool. Look, they all sold out. And I go, but you got to understand, like, they only made 50 pieces. We have to sell 1,500 pieces because we're this bigger company and we make stuff at these big factories because we could make 50-piece runs. But it's not worth the time to do it to the owner, Right because he expects a certain volume of business. If it's just like you you're not going to spend 6 hours selling somebody a $10 minifigure, you want to spend 6 hours selling selling them the $1000 thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Because that's you only have so many hours in a day to make the money for your store. Same thing for making, you know, being on the sort of manufacturing end. So, it gets complicated. So it's like because even the owner will be like, this guy's stuff sells out all the time. Why aren't we doing his stuff? And I'm like, well, dude they're only selling editions of 50. We can't sell 1,500 of those toys for 300 bucks a piece. The market's not there for He's it. like, oh, okay. So it gets complex. Hopefully, they'll all survive and thrive. But, you know, I mean, that's what killed record labels. Like when I was putting out on only vinyl records the small batches, it was beautiful and everything was great, right? The minute we started doing CDs and the numbers got real, the game got really dangerous. And then the day that, like, our distributor folded and left us holding the bag, the whole thing fell apart. So you got to be careful of what you wish for sometimes. So it's like, you know, there will always be the hobby companies. They'll always make the coolest stuff. It's the same thing in the garage resin kit industry. I don't know if you guys are into that at all, right? But there's a million dudes making the fucking coolest, like, resin kits, but they're making, like, runs of 20, you know? And that's the only, only way they can exist, so...
0: That's very true. There's always going to be the the people that are doing it as a passion, you know, hoping to make a little bit of money off of it.
3: Right, because you and I love some weird random character from something, but like there's not 2,000 people going to walk into Target and buy it,
1: ever. Do you have any advice to the uh, up-and-coming artists that are just like getting into trying to make a name for themselves, and then also the companies that may just be starting out?
3: You know, it's a double-edged sword. I think it's easier than ever and harder than ever. So back in my day 30 fucking something years ago it was hard in the sense that there was no internet you know, everything was physical right, you had to call people you had to know people, you had to travel places, you had to make physical connections that being said there were less places where things happened so if you were lucky enough to live in New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco or Austin, Texas or Minneapolis, right you had immediate exposure to like what was going on, right? College towns. So it was easy if you were there, it was impossible if you weren't, right? Because it used to, you know, you used to have to like, you know, there was no such thing as instant communication. You would have to get to know somebody, send them physical things, right? To show your work, right? Call them on the phone. Maybe you had a fax machine. You got a gig to do something creative. you would have to do it like by hand. You would have to draw it or paint it by hand. you would have to reproduce it somehow. you'd you have to send that painting back to the magazine. They, you know it was incredibly hard to do thinking about it. Now you can do something email it to a dude on the moon. simple. But the problem is, because it's easy now, there's a million motherfuckers go look at deviant art. Dot .com, there are literally like a million people of there doing incredibly good work. So at the same time that it's super easy to be a creative person and to show your shit to everybody in the world, there's so much of it that it's become valueless unless you just somehow get lucky, have superior workmanship, really know how to work your social media channels. So... It's easy to get exposed, but it's hard to turn that exposure into anything. Yeah. Like your podcast, you know, it's like how many people do you get? Not as many as you would think, right? Right. You go through this, you know, you go through this whole ordeal on a constant basis to make your podcast happen in the hopes that someday it clicks and blows up. So thirty years ago you couldn't you couldn't just sort of like, I'm gonna have my own radio show. It just didn't happen. <laughs> you know? You had to, like, somehow get into the radio business and then compete with everybody, you know? Now you can just have your own radio show 24 hours a day, but who's going to listen? So, it's easier to do it. It's harder to just, to actually get anybody to give a show. So, what I say is you got to do it and do it and do it and do it every fucking day over and over and over and over and don't ever let anybody say tell you not to do it and at some point if your work is valid, which is nobody can judge that but yourself and you're the people that like your work. So if your creative format is valid and your content is good, whatever it may be, at some point you'll hit a tipping point and then it'll sort of organically start to grow word of mouth on its own. You could spend a million dollars on like, you know, promotion online. It wouldn't do your podcast any good. The only thing that's going to work is to do it and do it and do it or your art or whatever it is and try to get next to people in a group where your work might add value to their experience and get them and then use them to leverage your work. You know what I'm saying? So that has always been the same way. To, To be heartbreakingly truthful about it, this is what happened to me. It's not what you do. It's who you know. I was really lucky to be a Place in Time in Austin where, like, I worked at, like, these little punk clubs and all these bands that became famous later and movie directors that became famous later, like, they worked at the Wendy's that I went to or their band played at my cl- the club I worked at on their first tour where there was, like, 12 people in the audience and then they became Sonic Youth or the Red Hot Chili Peppers or whatever the fuck. And they remembered me and they liked the little shitty poster I did from, you know what I'm saying? So... That's part of the thing, too, is like you also have to have a certain amount of luck because I'm not a very good artist. It's just that over time, I've done enough of it. I've learned enough lessons. I've befriended enough people to where I have a name. And it's not a household name, but I have a very comfortable living, and I'm really happy in my little world. you know. So that's the thing. It's like, but if I hadn't got up every fucking day after going to my regular job and done it, it would have never happened at all fuck going to school, if someone's gonna, if you're gonna borrow money, or someone, your family's gonna give you enough money to go to fucking art school, because you either got it, or you don't, okay, that's the thing, it's like, you can learn technique, but as far as, like, the magic, cannot be taught. You either have good taste, or you don't. Right? You either have a smart eye, or you don't. That's a natural inbred ability that nobody can explain. It just happens. It's like an intuitive fifth sense, or something. You know what I'm saying. So, you rather than having going into debt for a hundred grand or having your dad give you a hundred grand to go to fucking art school where they don't teach you fucking jack shit about the real world. Okay. You take that money, you rent a space, you open a studio, you start making stuff and trying to sell it. Learn that way. Do it that way. Do it. Just go do it. Because I only know like two people that went to art school that ended up making a living in the creative arts. I mean, there's a bunch of people working in ad issues as a shit, like, you know, grinding out crap. But as far as, like, their own artists, I only know two. One of them got real big, you know. But the thing is, man, I, you know, I used to go and, like, do classes at, at these art schools here in San Francisco. And it's it's really nice when you're in art school. Everyone's like, dude, you're fucking, you know, you're valid and your your ideas are, you know, and, like, you're awesome and you get laid and all. You know, it's the art school experience. It's got nothing to do with the real world because the real world. Doesn't give a shit about anything but like what you can do for them. Art school is all about what they can do for you. The real world is about what you can do for them. You're a plumber. You're there to fix a problem. You're there to make somebody happy. You're there to add value to somebody else's like cultural experience, right? It's just later if you become popular, then they're do- they're going to do for you because they want not the art but the popularity, the allure of the the popularity. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So to me, man, like, if you're a creative, you know, you have to accept the plumber part of it first. And that means, you know, you get up every day and you do it. If people laugh at you, you do it. If you get rejected a thousand times, you do it again. Over, everybody I know, every band I know that really made it, like, for real, it's because they got in a fucking van, okay, and smelled like ass for half the year and toured every shitty fucking club in the world until finally it happened for them, right? That's what you got to do. That's my advice. Do your thing. Do it every fucking day. And like it or not, your entire life, not in an egotistical way, but just in an energy way and at making connections in a thought way, has to revolve around your creative endeavor. You can't just like, oh, I'll paint two hours a day and be successful. Your life has got to be painting, the, the the places you go and spend time have to somehow either give you ideas or connect you to other people in the painting scene. Otherwise you will never make it. Because nobody cares. Nobody fucking cares. Like you could be the greatest artist in the world if you wall yourself up in a room and be all miserable about it part time. That's all you're ever gonna fucking get because nobody gives a shit. Especially now because like there's so much competition online.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, you know. I have a great career. I mean, I have a lot of money, and, you know, a lot of people treat me real nice and all this stuff. And when I say things, people listen. I go online, man. Everybody's better than me. You know, it's crazy how much talent there is out there. It would be fucking hard to be starting now. I mean, it would be easy if you could leverage all that, right, which everybody does. But at the same time, there's so much, which is great for people that enjoy looking at it, right, right? Every day is a wonderful trip down, all this amazing artwork, but it's hard for the artist. So you gotta put, you know, just doing it and putting it on there is not enough. You have to have a plan. You gotta fucking do it, man. Over and over. This is brutal. I mean, you're in business. It's no different than your fucking store, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, no every ever gonna know the fucking shit you went through to get your store rolling, right? It's right. not like, you know, you just like, oh, I'll just spend a bunch of money to have a store. We, <laughs> It's fucking crazy, right? Same thing for being a creative. So that's that that, that's what I say. It's like, you know, also don't just copy what you see on the internet. Go look at the world. Go stick your fingers in mud. Go look at books and and textures and paintings and shoes and rusty pieces. Just go look at stuff in the real world too. Don't just, you know, copy what you see online.
0: Kind of like taking it back to just a simple example of what you're talking about. Like back when you had your record label, I'm sure people were sending you tapes back in the day.
3: Yeah, dude. And I would I would get couple hundred tapes every week you know and the fancy people would burn the cd right and uh i would go in on saturdays by myself and sit in the in the in the workspace by myself on saturdays with the stereo turned up really light and just play every single fucking submission and you know 99 percent of it was not for me but once in a while there'd be something brand new band and you know some of them ended up being really popular bands and some of them Uh, will always linger in obscurity but that but you had to sit there and actually spend hours sifting through every week sifting through all the tapes you know and making judgment calls based on me going and watching bands play live in clubs for 20 years you know like not a i'm not a record collector not an audiophile i was a person that worked at punk and rock clubs for 20 years right in my youth and like just experience a lot of the reality or whatever. So I mean, you know, but the world changes, but but it's possible because the other thing that's beautiful on the internet is that if you have the energy to pull it off, you could just do paintings of like squirrel noses for a living and make a good living at it. If you become the squirrel nose person mm-hmm. and build a dedicated following of fans. You know, and that's kind of beautiful, right?
0: Well, guys, we've been talking for a while, so let's go ahead and start to wrap the episode up. Frank, if you want to take a second to toss out your social media so people know where to find you on the old internet.
3: Sure. I mean, you spent enough time listening to me ramble. on like a retard. You might as well look at some of the stuff. It's easy. I'm Frank Kozik everywhere. I'm Frank Kozik on Twitter. I'm Frank Kozik on Instagram. I'm Frank Kozik on Facebook. I'm Frank Kozik in Clubhouse frank kozik wherever you go no pseudonyms just my real name
2: and chris uh, at chris rwk or at robots kill and cork strange cat
1: toys and all social medias and strangecattoys.com
0: and i'm travis likens you can find me at uvd toys or UVDtoys.com. before we roll out we do want to take a second to say thank you once again to our fabulous sponsors first up we have stickerfied stickerfied.com no love city no love city.com SD prints, dot and tyO toys com. This has been the Urban robot Cat podcast, a show about art and the people who make it.
5: From a fountain that is pouring like an avalanche coming down the mountain. I don't mind the sun.